Well, welcome back to our latest installment of Kingdom People as we are over these past three weeks exploring some intersections of the call to be Kingdom People and what that means as we talk about racism and how we can engage. And today we're going to be talking about the film Just Mercy and the work of Brian Stevenson. So I'm Sarah. I'm Laura. And I'm Christian. Sarah said the movie is about uh, Brian Stevenson. And um, <clears throat> you may have heard of him before because uh, a few years ago, he was uh, one of the key people responsible for launching the National Memorial for Peace and Justice in Montgomery, which honors the 4,000 or so persons who were lynched in this country um, since Reconstruction around 1877 or so, up to 1950. So. There are obviously also further kind of lynching martyrdoms that happen after that. But um, Brian is also pretty well known as um, the founder of the Equal Justice Initiative. And I think a lot of people have gotten to know his work through reading the book, Just Mercy. And of course, this film is based on that book. And what it does is <clears throat> really it gives to us a narrative of the kind of work that uh, uh, Stevenson has been involved in for many, many years, since the 1980s, um, which has really been focused on uh, working with the poor, working with uh, minorities, communities um, that have been historically dispossessed. And because of that um, economic and to a certain extent racial and sometimes also gender um, uh, kind of condition, uh, they haven't had full access to real representation and justice, um, and he sought to try to redress that. So that's what this movie is about. All right, and I'm just going to remind us of um, the Courageous Conversation Framework as we're having this discussion and as you all are watching the movie and having your own discussions around it. Um, it begins with grounding yourself in how you are processing, uh, whether that is through what you are believing, what you are thinking, what you are feeling or what you are doing or how you are acting. Um, and just noticing um, about which of those ways you're processing. Um, and then it is just agreeing to uh, stay engaged, to speak your truth, from your perspective, um, to be willing to experience the discomfort that comes up for you and to expect and accept non-closure, that this is going to be a journey and not um, not a one-time conversation that will get us to any finality on it. So I'm gonna start with um, some of my noticings and these are gonna really be from a couple years ago when I first read the book, Just Mercy and um, what I was feeling when I read that book was horror and uh, nausea, disgust. My body was just almost like physically, viscerally responding, reacting to some of what I was reading in there because I just, I, I couldn't stomach it. I didn't know how, I didn't know how to take that in and respond. Um, and so, um, I, I just had times where I had to set the book down. I had to, um, I had to just metabolize, process, kind of work through some of what I was experiencing as I was as I was just 
reading this information and hearing these stories and finding out just just the atrocities that happened to a, a lot of people that he wrote about in the book. Can I comment on that? Yeah. Yeah. I just, I wanted to say that I really appreciate you naming that because uh, my experience has been that very often, uh, particularly for white folks as we're entering some of these conversations about um, these things that like, for instance, I didn't grow up knowing about any of this, about incarceration, this has not been a lane that's been my, my community's experience or, um, and, and to just name like the visceral response of one's body to being like, this is, this is terrible. It is terrible. So if you watch 13th or you read or watch just mercy and you're just like, Oh my goodness, I don't know what to do with this. Like, I just want to affirm like that is absolutely like a very normal response and part of, I think, our invitation and work then is to be able to notice and pay attention to that, to invite God into that space with us, to hold us, to care for us, to name our grief and pain and join with the prophets in saying, how long, O oh Lord? Because if we can't pay attention to that, we're going to turn away. Mm-hmm. If we can't hold space for that, then we'll be like, nope, I just, that was too much to want to deal with it. And uh, and so I just really wanted to highlight, I really appreciate you naming that. So Yeah, I think it also, um, I hadn't read this work at the time, but um, now that I have it, it's helping me understand how to actually do that in a better way. And that's Resma Menikin's work, uh, My Grandmother's Hands, where he, um, he calls himself a somatic abolitionist because he knows that so much of what we hold in terms of how we respond um, to race and to just a lot of things is in our bodies. And so um, just recognizing when things come up and and our bodies respond, which is what my body was definitely doing as I was reading the book uh, a couple of years ago. Um, Just noting and understanding that that it's not just a, a heady thing, that this is something that is is in us and in our bodies and our response, our, our understanding, uh, all of that um, is held in our bodies. And so as we, as we are confronted with some of these, um, some of these things that we didn't know and we didn't have before, and our bodies also respond to that, we, we process um, what he would say in in our hope is in clean pain, where um, we don't we don't bury it and then project it by blame and in other ways where it's, it becomes dirty pain and we don't ever actually deal with it and process it. But we want to process it with clean pain, where we um, we acknowledge it, we 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 own it, we. Um, we do take the time to sit with it and process it so that it can come out as clean pain and we can stay engaged in the work and in the conversations and moving forward with that. So um, his, his work has been really, really instrumental in just um, being able to stay engaged with, um, with all of this because it it is uh, traumatic and um, really painful but when I when I read the book um, the first time, I I really just kind of 
got a better understanding of what's been happening uh, behind walls where we would never even know, we would never even think. And one of the things that I was thinking about is it's kind of like, you know, when I, when I put my garbage out or when I put my recycling out, like I have no idea where it goes. It's just gone. And yet it actually, if I was responsible for my garbage and if I was responsible for my recycling, I would have a very different um, practice and work in terms of what I was doing with it because, you know, if it didn't get to go somewhere and be taken care of somewhere out there, like I would have to understand like, okay, well, if it has to stay here, if it has to stay in my yard, then I'm going to make sure that I'm not creating a lot and I'm like really really intimate with what I'm doing and how I'm living and that kind of thing. And I feel like our justice system is somewhat similar where it's kind of out of sight, out of mind, and we don't really get need to know or get, you know, have to have real like humanity around the people that are involved. We just figure like, well, somebody's got it and they'll make the, you know, I'm sure they'll do the right thing. And then whatever happens, I'm sure that's good too, because, you know, why wouldn't it be? And then you find out like, oh no, it's just, it's, it's, it's not. And there's, um, yeah, there's just a lot that isn't. Um, so in watching the movie, um, I was struck by um, Brian Stevenson's partner who um, she, she was, she was invested in doing this work and she really wanted to, to be with him and do that. But then when it started to affect her family, possibly she had to make a decision of, am I going to keep going or am I going to worry about the safety of my family? And, um, you know, she just said, I don't want my son to grow up knowing that his mom stopped doing what was right just because she was scared. And so, um, that was, that was another thing that really stuck out to me of like, you know, this, the system only works if people keep doing what the system says you're supposed to do. But then when you have these people like Brian Stevenson or his partner or, you know, people within the system or who are just, they start to disrupt the system and they don't go along with it just because it's what it is. And um, the the system, I think, eventually starts to, to crack. And hopefully it means that um, there can be a new system that is built um, together with all voices and everybody being humanized and everybody knowing that they are um, part of the family and that whatever happens to one happens to the other so that we are working on consciously building a system together that embodies love, embodies truth, embodies the way for us as Christians that Jesus would Jesus would want us to care for one another. And when it, whenever somebody uh, did something or was brought to him, he he never responded with um, punishment or condemnation or any sort of anything like that. It was always with mercy and it was always with justice. What, what is it that people need? And um, yeah. So those were some of my noticings this time and um, just something that Brian Stevenson said, I can't remember if he was talking to people in the movie or if it was just kind of his voice, like at the end of the movie, but just saying, you know, when you when you choose to get close to them, when they're when you're close to them, they're like family. And when your family is hurting, you're hurting. And so I think that, you know, the kingdom of God is a family. We are all family. And so when we get close to one another, we um, 
we are like family and when our family is hurting i'm hurting too and so Mm -hmm. that's where thanks laura i really appreciate you um those comments laura and there were a couple things that were that struck me so one of them has to do i think with just what struck me watching the movie and um and then reading a little bit about him and that was uh that he 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 is definitely aimed at engaging uh the african-american community and communities of color but but it's even it's even broader and you get a little bit of a sliver of that because you have these you have these scenes in the movie where he's interviewing people that he wants to work with and one of them is a white male you know but but there's this sense that really what he's trying to do is to work with people who are um, historically dispossessed right to make sure because they are the ones who oftentimes are um are not given the kind of justice um that they deserve um right and he's he's been high and he was i think highly involved and i think you had mentioned this beforehand that comes out in the book in trying to uh get access for children for young people under the age of 18 who who committed crimes but nevertheless who got sentenced to life without parole um you know and i think all the science that we know like right just the neurological science about the fact that the frontal cortex doesn't fully form until you're in your mid to late 20s and for some people it's even longer than that and so just the kind of process of trying to humanize Mm. right that we've talked a little bit about and i know Mm. others of you have some thoughts on that but that that struck me um as a component that this is that this is most certainly about uh for stevenson's systemic racism um which his argument his his significant argument is that um the process of lynching in the south the construction of jim crow laws and even with their dismantling the ways in which those legacies continue to live on Mm -hmm. through policies that kind of bake in what used to be overtly racist is now Mm -hmm. sort of implicitly so uh, but really, the ca- it's the category of poverty, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. and he is trying to stand on the side of those people who want to get free. Mm-hmm. And I don't just mean get free from the carceral, carceral system. I mean, people who want to get free from being exploited. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that really struck me was you were talking as I was reminded. So I so <laughs> a book that I have been reading <laughs> um, is actually on criminology in the 18th century. <laughs> Um, strangely Which I'm enough. sure all of you are reading at home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's by this English historian mm-hmm. and the title of the book is called the London hanged. And, and he really focuses on like 17th and 18th century, the development of the criminal system, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. as a part of the English process of creating the working class. Like they criminalize mm-hmm. certain behaviors and they don't criminalize mm-hmm. others and et cetera, et cetera. It's a fascinating book. But one of the things that he says, which I think intersects particularly with what you're talking about, um, about the out of mind, out of sight, is he notes how there used to be public executions and that some theorists and others would argue that these had a carnivalesque component and that it sort of became a public um, moment of bloodletting, which kind of allowed a lot of the passions to come out. And he doesn't discount that that's a part of the process, but he, but one of the things that he does is he reads otherwise 
And he notes that it also, those public executions also became a source of significant criticism because what it did was it displayed the state as a murderer, mm. right? That the state is executing justice and oftentimes on people that didn't necessarily deserve it. And so my point in all of saying all this is that, uh, and this also comes from having direct encounters myself with the penitentiary system of trying to get books to people who are incarcerated and how hard it is just to get a book to someone in jail. And that part of the reason for closing and closing and closing and sealing and sealing and sealing is precisely so we won't see how fundamentally dehumanizing and unjust this really is. Um, quite apart from the questions that we should be engaging, which is what is appropriate, you know, in terms of holding people accountable for crimes. Um, but, but the system is built in a sense to make it difficult for us to view these people. And so they just, they just become like animals. And I think, I mean, I, I know this was something that you were thinking of too, Sarah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I, I think a couple pieces of things. The one is, um, what you were just talking about in terms of the ways that there's the intersections of race and class and, uh, you know, the access that impacts, uh, like who gets seen and who gets humanized in a world. And I love that humanizing is coming up in all of our speaking about this film. Uh, the reason is I think about this, my, I went to Chaska high school, my, um, family lived in Chaska and then my brother graduated from Maconia and, uh, came of age at Westwood Community Church out in Chanhassen. And my brother had a, a group of friends who he had played basketball with and they, um, a lot of them went to Westwood to the youth group and everything. Uh, most of them, were, there was one, uh, kid who was a kid of color and the rest were all white kids and all from mostly from money. You know, we didn't have money, but most of his friends did. And one day they were like doing this thing where they were on a bridge and they were like throwing stones off the bridge just because their frontal cortex wasn't developed and they were being stupid, right? Like they were just being jerks and not thinking about what was happening. Like decent, decent kids, right? Like, I mean, not terrible. They were fine. You know, one of them is my brother. And, and like they break someone's windshield. Okay. And what ends up happening is that one of the kids, uh, dad's a lawyer and intervenes. And so like, cause this guy was going after them and he actually had like a really bad accident. It was like a bad thing. And, and I think about the difference of what would have happened if these boys didn't have access to financial resources or there were young, young black men in the city and, and how all of them got off. Like they, they, nothing bad happened to them. It was very much seen as like a boys will be boys. Like they made a mistake, but they were also able to employ the resources that their family had. And so they were able to have now flourishing lives. I know where some of them are at now. One of them may or may not have been, uh, married briefly to a very popular, famous figure that I won't name because then you'll know exactly who it is and who this person is. But I'm just, so that really strikes me is, is just thinking about that. And, and I think that's one of the challenges because I know that I grew up thinking, like I watched cops, we talked about this before, like there's the justice system, right? And it's, its job is to execute justice. And the challenge is what happens and how do we deal with the fact that justice actually isn't 
uh, without paying attention to who it is. Justice actually is heavily weighted in particular directions dependent upon uh, race, dependent upon access to money. And so this is where I love Brian Stevenson's work because he's like, no, but justice shouldn't care about those things. Justice should be something that's for everyone. I think that's why we want to defend justice because you're like, because fundamentally justice should be just, it should be good for everybody. And Brian Stevenson, I think, does such a powerful job of interrupting then the system that prevents justice from actually being able to be enacted for everyone and is saying no, Part of the work here is then to raise up communities that have precisely been denied justice so that they can get equal treatment under the law. Uh, not that it's just over, you know, like there should be no law, but nothing. No, it's right now the law is unjust. So that's one of the things. And I think, you know, Laura, you had talked about when you first read this book. And and for me, too, I think my initial reading of the book, there's some pieces of that that have stayed with me up until today. And for me, the central piece well, there's two central pieces, but the central piece for me is um, the scene where you you recognize, and this is true in the film as well, that these families and these folks who are on death row have not had anyone ever come and actually ask them their story. Like at every point along the journey, folks have, whether they think they're uh, operating on their behalf or whether they're against them, folks just don't show up. They don't care. They're just a cog in a machine instead of a real human flesh and blood family who's someone's son, who's someone's brother, who's part of a community. And that this community also is hurting. And what it means that he actually goes and shows up and sits with people. And what hit me in reading the book was how truly revolutionary the act is and how central to his ministry of being a lawyer <laughs> actually sitting with people and letting them tell their stories. And so for me, I, when I think then about the question that often comes up when we talk about issues of justice, it's like, well, what can I do? Throw my hands up. You know, I can't, the system's too big. What could I possibly do? Well, I'd like to suggest that one incredibly radical act is we literally can just sit with people who have different experiences from us and listen. And that that is truly a profoundly revolutionary and profoundly Christ-like act. Not to control your story, not to tell you if your story is valid. And just briefly to say, this, you know, that's, you've heard me say this a lot, like that is why I married Andy Carpers. Because he was the first white dude, you know, near my age who I was attracted to and could possibly date who actually listened to me and listened to my experience. And I was like, I'm going to marry that one, <laughs> you know, like, because my experience had been that growing up in contexts where women didn't have access to lead or when I had perpetually experienced uh, sexual assault, uh, sexual discrimination or gender-based discrimination. And what's the thing? Sexual harassment. I was like, what's that other thing I experienced with regularity or have experienced regularity? And mo most of the time, instead of getting defensive, Andy would ask me a question or tell me he didn't understand. And so literally we're first dating and he says to me, so you're a feminist. Does that mean you hate men? And I looked at him and I, and we had just, I think, finished making out. And he was, I was like, I was like, clearly. And he sat back and he, I just watched him think about it. And he was like, and he goes, okay, so what does feminism mean to you? And he just sat and listened to me. 
So what might our ministry of even being able to literally just sit with people and hear their stories and do that with humility? And that is a powerful witness. And so I think for me, fundamentally, that's where, as I read this book and, and watching the film, I think to me, Brian Stevenson is an example of what it means for us to be people who follow Jesus. And that will look different in all of our lives and each of our stories. But I think the ways that he's choosing to show up in the world and to join with the Jesus who inaugurated the kingdom <laughs> by saying, I've come here to give sight to the blind, freedom for the prisoners. And in all of our own ways, how can we partner with God and in Jesus and doing this work of showing up and being those kind of kingdom people? So, yeah, thoughts are kind of closing. Um, I just, yeah, I have a thought just kind of on, in addition to what you were saying about sitting with people and getting to know their stories and just kind of, you know, listening and hearing different perspectives. Um, I was listening to um, a conversation the other day and Dr. Virginia Ward was asked similarly, like, what can, you know, what can white, white people, in, white pastors, white, you know, congregations, what can we do um, in this work of anti-racism. And one of the things that she said was get to know people of color and their stories so that when things happen, you have a person that you are reflecting and relating what's happening to. So it doesn't just become a story to somebody out there that you don't know, but you can actually put a familiar known person plays like in that story to be like, oh, wow, this actually has some significance and meaning to me now. Like I would act on this in a different way than if it's someone that I just don't know or, you know, whatever it is. And um, she just said that that is something that a number of her white friends have done so that when things happen, they put her sons or they put other people in, mm -hmm. in their mind or in their memory so that they're thinking like, Oh, like this could have been him. This could have been, you know, like, okay. Mm -hmm. um, and I think another thing, um, there was a man named Albert Tate and he said that um, whether it's white privilege or some other kind of privilege, but commit to stewarding your, your privilege um, for your neighbor and for what God would be, you know, wanting us to move towards. And so whether that's in, you know, in circumstances like in this movie, how can you know what privilege you have? And then how can you steward that privilege in a way that seeks justice and seeks mercy? Um, and I think lastly, um, Virginia Ward said um, that this new generation is demanding a bigger God. Um and so that really stuck out to me too. I think that's very true that um, of, of every race, this new generation, the emerging generations are demanding a bigger God than what we've had. Amen. It can't just be about church replication. No. I think the last thing it just really is just kind of um, reinforcing and it, it has to do with, you know, you cannot deny that Brian Stevenson is an extraordinary and unique figure, uh -huh. Uh -huh. winner of a MacArthur Genius Award, uh -huh. law, went to Harvard Law, uh -huh. founds a museum, uh -huh. right? <clears throat> but I think, and and a lot of us are not that. Uh -huh. Like that's, we're just, 
-hmm. We're just average, ordinary, ordinary, everyday people, right? I mean, and and yet, if we took this advice, just learning how to listen, getting to know other people's stories, and that might not be able to happen initially just face to face. It might have to, particularly right now, in a pandemic context, it might just have to happen in reading. And listening to podcasts and thinking and mm -hmm. but that in and of itself mm. is potentially revolutionary. Absolutely. Right? It humanizes, it changes. Absolutely. And so. I feel like that is a wonderful segue to saying we want to invite all of you to continue the conversation. And the thing that we are going to do together is we're gonna listen. And in July and again in August. We've selected two texts that we're going to invite us as a community to center ourselves around, to keep breathing and, and listening and leaning in with love and humility, to keep praying and inviting um, Christ's spirit to, to open us and to help us more deeply participate in God's kingdom. And so we want to invite you to join us for that. Look for more information about that in your e-news in terms of the books and how you can get access to those and the locations and ways in which we'll be engaging both in conversation and then in some deeper exploration about how our faith invites us to, to lean in, to listen, and to be part of the revolution of Jesus, which looks different than most revolutions, but it's one where there's a kingdom for all of us. So thanks so much for joining us these last three weeks. And uh, please, again, join us in July and August. And you can also on our website, check out there, there are a bunch of resources, other podcasts, ways you can get involved. And you can find that at colonialchurch.org forward slash anti-racism. So God's peace go with you and may God's love and spirit unite us that we might indeed be one people. Amen. Amen.